0: The thing that I wanted to share with you tonight is, of course, the, uh, the gathering storm. And uh, as Jesus himself was facing, beginning this very night, the, the abandonment that he would feel from his closest friends on this earth, but also from his own Father in heaven, to hand him over to become the sin bearer. Of the sins of the world, Um, I think of a passage that came to my mind from the the prophet Isaiah in 63 verse 5. It's a messianic messianic prophecy in which Isaiah says, I looked speaking for Yahweh, but there was no one to help. I was appalled and there was no one who would uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. And that is God speaking about God. That is God talking about His Son, Jesus. The year was 33 A.D. And what was seen in the Old Testament way back in the time of Isaiah, um, <laughs> it, was, it was the arrival of it was like a slow train that was pulling in. It was the final arrival of what Isaiah had seen and what the Old Testament had pro- prophesied. And so, in 33 A.D., it was on this very evening when Jesus got his disciples together, and then he did something that rabbis never do. <laughs> you know, the the rabbinic students always serve them. He starts to serve the students and the disciples when he took the posture of a servant and began to wash feet they protested and specifically it was Peter who said you shall never wash my feet and Jesus said if I do not wash you you have no share with me this was the beginning of a 24-hour period in which the creator of the universe, who would now bend over and wash dirty feet, even in the face of the protest of his best friends, he was not just fleshing out a parable. He was actually beginning to do what was the the climax of the reason why he had come to Bethlehem and why he came to this earth, because he had come to bring redemption and to bring restoration to a broken, fallen, sinful humanity. And it begins right here in a small room with 12 people in which he begins what is now a transition from the Old Testament Seder of Passover to the inauguration of a new Seder that we're going to celebrate tonight. It was on this night of nights that justice was going to meet mercy. And, um, and it was going to be in unexpected ways. Humanity frequently assumes that the present Is just going to be extended into the future as it is now. But this was not in God's plan. And it upset it it upset his his disciples. And in a sense, it doesn't upset us because we've heard, we know how the story ends, but they did not at that point understand what was going on. That the future was not going to be a continuation of the present, and what they were witnessing was a dramatic. Change in relationship and in how God was going to bring about this, this redemption. In fact, it, it uh, was within a few hours when God was going to shake the whole earth there in Israel. And, he, and it was a centurion who all of a sudden realized as he was at the foot of this, this man that was a criminal in his eyes. When the ground began to shake and the tombs began to open and dead people began to come out of those tombs in the beltway of, of tombs all around Jerusalem, when he realized he was on the wrong side, he, it, the Scripture says the centurion saw the earthquake and what took place, and he was filled with awe, and he said, truly, this was the Son of God. I can't imagine what that guy must have felt like at that moment when the earth went dark. Not just for five minutes, for three hours. And, um, and so this, this storm that had been gathering dramatically was going to burst right over everybody's head. Jesus had actually been warning over and over to the Pharisees and he had begun to tell his disciples that there was going to come a change. In fact, in Matthew chapter 15, or 16 verses 1 to 3, it says, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to test Jesus once again, okay? And, he, and he, Jesus answered them, when it is evening, you, will, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today because the sky is is threatening. You know how, listen to his words, to interpret the sky, the weather, but you cannot interpret these signs of the time. In that moment, not since creation, had there been a series of events like the arrival, in, the arrival of Jesus, they were going to be within hours eyewitnesses of something that was going to change the course of all human history, not to mention all of eternity. Those events would bring about eternal change And so, if we talk about a coming storm, now the storm that is drawing near, the storm clouds have gathered, and it's becoming more intense. In Mark chapter 14, Mark writes in his his gospel about a growing conspiracy. That conspiracy, it was now two days before Passover, and it was the feast of the unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking in how they could arrest him by stealth and killing. And the stealth was the conspiracy, but they knew it was wrong, so they were doing it secretly because they didn't want a mob riot. And so we have the increase of the drama now <laughs> that is leading up to this moment in which Jesus has gathered with his disciples to celebrate a new Passover. They had taunted him. They they had accused him. They had maligned him. They had had thrown a volley of, of questions against Jesus to try to trick him. In fact, at one point in his answer, it says, no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. They were trying to spar intellectually and spiritually with the creator of the universe. The creator of the very minds that they had that they were trying logically or irrationally to trip him up in order to accuse him. Can you imagine mere mortals playing with the creator of the mind? (laughs) The one who who invented logic, if you will. And so here it is. You can see the storm clouds gathering. And in Matthew 23, Jesus really lets it rip. (laughs) There had been times in his strategy where as as the storm gathered, he would would avoid them. Sometimes he would go somewhere else. But the day had passed in which he was going to have that strategy of avoidance because his hour had now come. And so what he does is he begins to speak just like the prophets of old. Do you ever notice when you read Amos or... or or you read Jeremiah, woe, 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 Isaiah. He will talk about woe, which is a prophetic term of malediction. It is a warning. It's a severe warning. But Jesus now takes that prophetic woe and he begins to pronounce it in Matthew 23 on the heads of those who have conspired to kill him. And so he says, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, And hypocrites. (laughs) Now, you methinks you don't call a crowd hypocrite unless you are prepared for a blowback from that crowd. And so he begins to say, you know, you build tombs, you honor them and decorate them, and then you say to yourself, well, if we had lived in that day, the tombs of the prophets, we would have never stoned them to death. And listen to what Jesus says. (laughs) Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Wow. And as if that isn't enough, just so there's no ambiguity in his accusation of the prophetic woes, listen to what he then says. Now understand this is the top leadership of Israel. Now you see the storm is here. And, and he says to them, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? And every Jew knew that hell was a place first created for the devil and his angels, if I, and I'm quoting Jesus. And now he's saying, you're going to the same place to call them serpents, the top leadership of the, of the nation. Can you imagine that? Imagine the hostility now that had increased between Jesus and this group who has conspired secretly to get him killed. He's warning them. It actually was an act of grace on his part to warn them if they remained on that impenitent path. That is exactly where their feet would land them. And what he was saying to them is, I'm the only one in Israel worth, I'm the only one in history worth following. And I'm the only one who will rule forever when you guys are gone. And so Jesus had made it clear that he had come for this precise purpose to tear down all human unrighteousness and to replace, it, put in its place, God's righteousness. That's what the book of Romans is all about. You know the question, are you, am I saved? Have you ever asked yourself that many times? Certainly you did when you first turned to Jesus. But um, we oftentimes hear, "I've been saved," and I've shared some of these quotes before. But I wanted to remind us on this night, as we look at the Passover Seder, when the Scriptures tell us, as when the Scriptures tell us that God saves us and that salvation is of the Lord, we oftentimes forget that salvation is also from the Lord. What, we need to be, what do we need to be saved from? Kidney stones? Wars? <laughs> hurricanes? Military defeats? No. What every human being needs is to be saved from God. <laughs> to be saved from God can only happen if it is God who saves us from himself. And what that means is he's not the party who's in the wrong. We are. And if we deserve his justice on our heads, then as we saw in Isaiah, what Isaiah pinned in his scroll that I just read at the beginning that that statement meant God looked around, he looked at the whole nation, he looked all over the earth, and he didn't find anybody. And so he's basically saying, I will do the job myself, and in steps the Messiah. (laughs) Wow. As Sproul, in this quote I'm giving you, says, Woe unto those who have no Savior on the day of wrath. When we put our faith in Jesus... God cloaks us, and this is what Jim talked about this past Sunday. God cloaks us in, in his, um, God, God cloaks us in His garments of righteousness. And it's that garment that He cloaks us in, which is the righteousness of Jesus that must and will for sure save us. The main objection of humanity today is that we, we as human beings protest the idea of hell or of the justice and the wrath of god and in so doing you look around and you see people don't give a rip about the wrath of god today you know the man on the street the television anywhere you look around the world we don't care about the wrath of god why because We don't think we're all that bad anyways. In fact, we're doing our best. And after all, God will grade on a curve when all is said and done. (laughs) But as if that isn't enough, what we've really done is we've kind of adjusted and said, well, there really isn't a right and wrong. And right and wrong is only what you individually decide in your hearts. Well, then in the day of, of Jesus as the Pharisees were becoming angry and hostile against Jesus, it was the Pharisees who had done something similar to what we're doing in our culture. We say, there is no right or wrong. We've dumbed it down. They too had dumbed down the law of Moses. And so in the law of God, they figured we can handle the righteousness thing. I've got it under control. In fact, control, they loved control. They had created a whole series of layers of rabbinic teachings and of practices that would give them that power of life and death over the people of Israel. And everything was going real good <laughs> until the I Am got into their orbit. And when he stepped into their orbit, they began to turn from a benign smile to a snarl. And the more they got to know about Jesus, it was Jesus who was disarming what they had done. Jesus had openly shown them that there is a standard that is unreachable. And that's why God said, I'm going to bear my arm, and with my own arm, I'm going to bring your salvation. You know, um, that was, this is how we think today. There is no standard. That's how they thought in that day. We can dumb down the, the rules, and I can keep that, and therefore God owes me. He's a debtor to me to give me the kingdom. And that's what Jesus was showing them. <laughs> but uh, but Jesus Himself also says, "There's coming a surprise when I come back." And that surprise is going to be that even the unbelieving world is going to scream for mercy when there will be no mercy to be found because it will be too late. It's called the second coming. And so Jesus, 62 years after he had been on this planet, revealed himself to John the apostle, gives us the book of Revelation. Listen to two snapshots that Jesus gives of what's going to happen concerning his coming wrath. He says, then the kings of the earth and the great ones, and the generals, the rich, the powerful, everyone. You notice that word, it sticks in the crawl, everyone. Everyone slave and free, even the poor. He says, everyone, no one gets a pass is what he's saying. He says, they will hide themselves in caves and among the rocks and the, of the mountains, and they will call to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne, that's God the Father, and from the wrath of the Lamb. Do you know who that is? Say it a little louder. It's Jesus. And He's the one who is the Savior that was saying to his generation and is saying to our generation as well because this looks to the future, he's saying there is only one thing you must do. You must flee to he who alone is Savior and Lord. In fact, he later says in in Revelation 19 towards the end of the book, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh is the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen? Aren't you glad to know with all the stuff that's going on in this world that there's going to come a time when God is going to correct every wrong and he's going to bring redemption to all those who have fled to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And so we think tonight, we've all seen on the television the Ukrainian war. And as we look at that, how brutal it is and all the rapes and the murders and the attacks and, and all that continues and they're even upping it more tonight. Listen, listen, Those people, imagine if you were in a bombed-out building hiding from the rockets. You know what is on your mind? Justice and protection. But the worst armies in the world and all that they can hurl at the innocent unjustly, all they can hurl is nothing but a pop-gun affair. Compared to what Jesus as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords has described to us. So you see, it was those who would come against Jesus and would outright out of hand reject and murder the Prince of Peace and the one who gives life. And that's what they did. So the storm clouds that had been building all the way through had now broken. And it was easy to see that it was a, it was a violent downpour of wrath. But here's the shocker. It's not the Sadducees or the Pharisees or the Roman leaders, it's not those who got the wrath. Do you know who got the wrath? Anybody know who got the wrath? Can you believe it? The only person who was innocent, who was standing on the ground there in Jerusalem, is the one who gets the wrath. He's the only innocent party to suffer first. And so the Passover, which had been a big deal in the Old Testament, in which God brought an entire world-class empire to its knees and broke it economically and spiritually, if you will, it was this one whom God gave to the Israelites when God broke that kingdom and brought them out of slavery. It was them who God said, I want you to remember this. I want you to remember this so well that when you, generations to come, you teach this to your children, you recite it, you have a meal. It's called the Passover Seder. And you are to remember this every year. Remember, I redeemed you from slavery. You all needed it, and you couldn't do it yourself. I showed up, and I defeated an uh, an unmovable um, tyrant. I broke his bonds, his chains that had last you for so long. Well, that was the first Passover, and the Passover, remember the blood of the lamb that was put over the doors and the angel of death passed over. Everybody who had the blood of the lamb, but those who did not, they lost the firstborn. And that is only limited judgment. When Jesus comes on this night and begins the new Passover Seder, we call it the Lord's Supper, we are, we are getting a taste of a change of administration. You see, it was, God is so incredible. I'm amazed at what a storytelling God he is. He is so incredible in his precise timing that of all the years Jesus had lived, we think he died when he was around 33 or so. When this evening happened, Mark 14 says, it was on the first day of unleavened bread when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, the, the disciples said to him, where will you have us go to prepare for you to eat the Passover? You see, they were once again thinking of the old redemption. And what Jesus is uh, doing is he is meeting with them to celebrate that last Passover, but for those who were in Christ, that Passover has passed over. And what we have now is the final Passover meal, but this meal requires, according to Jesus, a betrayal. And so Jesus, Mark records in Mark 14, 18, he says, and as they were reclining at the table eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And that betrayal was to hand Jesus over, premeditated to his enemies. But he goes on to say later that you'll all abandon me. That's not necessarily a betrayal. Judas was unique in that, but they did run. And so we, we find out as, Jesus, as Mark records in chapter 14, he says, as they were eating, he took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to them and he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and we'd given thanks to them and gave it to them, he, they all drank, and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. For truly I say to you, I will not drink again the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Do you realize Jesus has been on a fast <laughs> for 2,000 plus years? He says, I'm not going to celebrate The new covenant meal until I'm with you. How awesome is that. (laughs) So when he talks about this betrayal, unlike the description of Revelation about a future wrath, Jesus is saying, I am going to get punished first. And so they were greatly troubled by this. And it was shortly after that, they sang a hymn, they walked out to the Mount of Olives, which is only about a mile from where they were meeting. And it was there where he drew away and he said, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. He comes back three times. They keep laying down, going to sleep and doing whatever. And on the third time, he said, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. (laughs) My brothers and sisters, this night of all nights, in which Jesus was betrayed and handed over. For you and for me, we see humanity's universal treason against our God has come to light. But in it, Jesus was intending to expose the insufficiency of the righteousness of organized religion and of religious human beings. And what he shows is he's the only one who can save them. That's why he's God's arm, as Isaiah mentioned. So Roman law has gotten together with Jewish piety for what reason? And, as, and I said this a couple years ago. These people were the best. They were the most respected in the capital of Israel. Jerusalem, they weren't the Al Capones. They were not the Vladimir Putins of this world. You know who they were? They were the most revered. They were the guys who did the Bible studies, memorized all of the Old Testament. They had religious convictions and concerns. They were the PhDs, the great moral teachers. And in the end, they were the ones who violently turned against he alone who was righteous. (laughs) So it was a rejection. Jesus had shown them that God is not interested just in our to-do list of I'm not going to do this and I'm going to do that and you'll like me. He knew that would never cut it. And so it was not until Jesus stepped onto the scene that they began to realize we've got to make one of two choices we either have to repent and come to believe in yeshua as ha mashiach he's the messiah or we have to silence this man and reject him and kill him so that we can keep playing church or synagogue And so what an amazing Savior he is. No one bribes God. (laughs) No one. Remember this. Isaiah said it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God looked out all over the world and all throughout the land of Israel where if there had been any righteousness, it would have been found there. And he says, God looked out and there was no one to help. So God, in essence, says, I'll do it myself. Aren't you glad? Seriously. Aren't you? Is this a Presbyterian church or what? (laughs) Aren't you glad? Amen. I finish with a quote from Sproul that I go over once in a while just to remind myself and get sobered up. When Jesus took the curse upon himself, he so identified with our sin that he became a curse. God cut him off, and justly so. This was an act of divine justice. At the moment that Christ took upon himself the sin of the world, he became the most grotesque, Most obscene mass of sin in the history of the world. God is too holy to even look at iniquity. And when Christ was hanging on the cross, the Father, as it were, turned his back on Christ. Uh. He removed his face, he turned out the lights. He cut off his son. There was Jesus who in his human nature had been in a perfect, blessed relationship with God throughout his life. There was Jesus the son in whom the father said he was well pleased. He now hung in darkness, isolated from the father, cut off from fellowship, fully receiving in himself the curse of God, not for his own sin, but for the sin he willingly bore by imputation for our sake. Imputation means he takes and puts to your account what properly belonged to him. So as we enter into a time of communion, I just want to encourage you think about these things and and sort through this week as Jim had challenged us last Sunday, let's pause now and let's not be quick to run to Easter. Let's pause now as we pass through the arrest, as we pass through the Monday Thursday, the mandatum, the, the command to love one another, to wash one another's feet, to assume the role of a servant, but first we can only be holy if we are washed by him first.